In this episode of STEMiverse, Marcus and I talk with Professor John Fischetti. Professor Fischetti is Head of School of Education School in the University of Newcastle in New South Wales, Australia. Over the past 30 years, John has worked to revamp classroom practices, school structures and board policies around the new era we are in that he calls the Collaborative Global Innovation Age. In the past, John has served as a dean in the US, a professor and teacher. Working inside school reform, revamping teacher education and rethinking leadership preparation over the past 30 years, Professor John Fischetti brings a divergent set of experiences to the University of Newcastle. In this hour-long, jam-packed discussion, John talks about equity versus equality in education, flipped schools, refugee education in Miami, personalized education, intellectual inspiration, student engagement, how to equip our children with the intellectual tools they need to reach the moon and beyond, how the role of teachers has already changed, and much, much more. This is STEMiverse episode 14. Welcome to STEMiverse, the podcast that helps educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. I am Peter Dalmaris, and with my co-host, Marcus Sharpie, our mission is to bring you the experiences of educators, students, and stakeholders who strive every day to make the teaching and learning of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and art better. So, uh, John, thank you very much for joining us in another episode of Steniverse. So, I'm here with Marcus Sharpie yeah. at the Steniverse studio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, we'd like to, to start and uh, with, with a, take a few minutes, uh, invite you to take a few minutes and uh, tell us a bit about yourself and your background and what brings you to where you are now in terms of education. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be part of your broadcast and also to learn more about your good work. And I hope the session today, we give people opportunity to think differently about the future of particularly schooling in the learning space. And it's part of my job to motivate people that every chance that we can, every interaction we have is a chance to inspire. And we often lose those moments in the precious present. So this will be a great chance to learn more about your work, get to know each other and also help the audience see what they might do for themselves or their children or their neighbors or um, the future of the planet maybe is even on. <laughs> yes, think big. <laughs> a good time to be thinking about that. Um, so my work is as technically it's the Dean of Education or the Head of School of Education at the University of Newcastle here in Newcastle, Australia. What we do is we provide through our 4,500 teacher education students, one of the largest programs in all of Australia, one of the largest in the world, and 1,500 postgrad students working on their master's or their PhD. So our school has about 6,000 students who are all preparing to be leaders, teachers, or other kinds of uh, scholars who are trying to change education to make the world a better place. They come from all over Australia and all over the world. And uh, we have a university here that has a mission that is really based on equity. And a lot of people maybe in the audience confuse equity and equality. And, you know, equality is sameness, meaning that if there's $2, I give each of you one, one dollar each. That's, that seems equal. That seems fair. But actually, what if Peter needed 50 extra cents for a reading tutor in year one, and I needed 
30 extra cents for a math tutor in year two and nobody else needed anything, well, people would say, well, that's not equal. They would say that's not fair, but actually it is fair to give children what they need when they need it so that they get the services they need from the society. So equity is about fairness. And that's really my motivation in the education space. We're gonna get into those issues in the show today. My career started working in the Haitian Refugee Center in Miami, Florida in 1980, which if you do any history of the US in 1980 was a very contentious time. Ronald Reagan was running against Jimmy Carter for president of the US and in doing so, uh, Carter was bogged down with a crisis with this uh, trying to free hostages in Iran. And I was southern part of Florida when uh, Castro was letting what they called the Freedom Flotilla out of prison, prisoners out of prisons in Cuba. And Haitians were overwhelmed by a corrupt government that was leading people to take a boat you and I wouldn't cross uh, a little river in. And they were coming across the ocean to the U.S. So I was working with Haitian refugee students, realizing how much uh, poverty affected their lives. And just out of the university, realizing I needed to do something uh, with my career. And through working with the young people from Haiti who had not gone to proper school in their lives, did not know how to read and write, um, but were amazing, get, gave me the motivation to go back and do what in Australia we call a master of teaching. But a a two-year degree to become a teacher at that point out of the university. So I first came to teaching thinking we've got to do something better for those who need education as hope and opportunity, and have tried to spend my career in that space. Some of that is by the pedagogies we use, some of that is by the philosophies we use behind those, and some of it's about whether we as adults are willing to play in the sandbox together, because actually we, all, we know how to educate every child. It's whether we have the commitment as a society to do so. And that takes a little bit of what we call differentiation, getting it right for each child, meaning that each child should have their chance to be whoever they are, to be the great, amazing individual. But that may look a little different for each child. And what we'll get in today is how that's different than maybe 1981 when I actually did my student teaching. What's, what's different today in education around the world? Uh, we have a diaspora taking place with young people who are having to leave home because of war and uh, incredible um, suffering that's taking place through things that may not, not have been anybody's fault in that home country, but political wars have been played out, particularly in countries we can name if we need to. Uh, we owe it to those children to provide them education in more stable environments. So one of the commitments we have here as a university is to get education right, not just for those of privilege, but for those who have a complete capability, but are coming to education, having some hardships in their life. So that's our commitment here is what drew me here. And it's what I think some of the topics of, of this conversation will be about. So speaking of what drew you, what drew you to be a teacher? And when did you decide to become a teacher? There's only one reason to be a teacher, and that's because you love the opportunity to help children be successful. And I always knew that's what I wanted to do, but I was discouraged from being a teacher, as many people are in school. I don't know if that happened to you, but sometimes students who are perceived as good students are told that teaching is, at least in the U.S. at the time and Australia now, not you're, you're better than that. You shouldn't be a teacher, that you actually skills that would be more successful in other careers. And it, finally, I had to get past those voices in my ear and have some experience to realize that that was what I was driven to do. The real opportunity of a teacher is to empower others and to help people discover who they are and to give them the tools of the content, whether that's literacy, numeracy, or other content, that gives them the chance to see the world in a different place, but more importantly, see themselves 
as this amazing gift that can be whatever it is their passion takes them to be. And so the opportunity to teach, I taught in the social sciences and history, political science, economics. Um, most people think of those as dull and dry and stale subjects. But the opportunities to learn about all the people whose shoulders we stand on are just is unbelievable gift to be able to share that history and also multiple perspectives about that history. Um, and so amazing things that they turn kids on is that if we took the North Korean issue that's facing at the time that we're taping today uh, and the potential response that the U.S. or the rest of the West may make, and we read newspaper accounts of that in South Korea, in North Korea, in China, in London, in Rio, and we reported to each other the different perspectives, we would get a big appreciation for the diversity of the planet. Mm -hmm. And there's ways to do that now that weren't available. In the past, we would have had a really tougher time in doing so. So it's that spirit of multicultural and international and multiple perspectives that once you turn a kid on to thinking differently, they make it easy. And so what draws me is the chance to give people the uh, opportunity to invent themselves, reinvent themselves, and tools they can use for a lifetime to be critical thinkers and problem solving. Some of the skills now that are coming into vogue in schools uh, where we're trying to get more of that happening. It's very interesting how you started your story with um, the, the time that you were a teacher in Miami, right? If I, if I got my notes right, you were um, an educator, you were a teacher of kids coming on boats from, from Haiti. And that must have been when you were still fairly young as a teacher. I think it goes back in the 80s. So what drove you to become a teacher of refugee children rather than be assigned to a normal school in some, I suppose, more affluent district in the U.S.? So leaving the university, I had not studied teaching. And I joined, at the time, this program that was very similar to the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps is a program in the U.S. where earnest people can sign up and go help save the world, even if naively. Uh, and there was a program in the U.S. at the time called VISTA, Volunteers in Service to America. And if you felt inclined, you could sign up and the organization you would give you a few choices of where you might like to go from their list of where they need you. But my feeling was that the U.S. had enough internal needs that we needed people to help internally, not just around the world, and that the levels of disparity and inequities and poverty could be helped in our own backyard, so to speak. And when that opportunity came up, I, I went to Miami. But I had just graduated with my undergraduate degree. Um, I had not gone into the teaching degree, which I did following this experience. So you're now in Miami, you're helping out refugee kids. Can you give us uh, a feeling of what that must have been like for a young person just starting up as a teacher? Well, one of the things that we're often naive about because we only know our own perspectives, and particularly if you come from whatever middle class means, and I, I consider middle class to mean I probably won't go hungry in 2017. <laughs> I, I'm probably going to be all right. And I look at that as middle class. I can probably guarantee I'll have a roof over my head this year. After that, anything can happen that changes your life. But that leaves me time to my mind to wander. Because if you know you're going to have supper and a place to live, you might have a little leisure to be able to think about things and do things. And what I realized is that we had so much privilege, but I didn't really understand lack of privilege. So here are kids coming on a boat that literally rickety thing and breaking rules. If they end up going home. They and their families are going to be persecuted. Probably the sister they left behind is already being. But what I hadn't understood is how desperate people would be if hope was taken away from them, that you'd be willing to get in a boat and climb across 
you know, not, it's 90 mile distance, which is not that huge in an ocean liner, but in a boat that's leaking with 15 or 20 people in it. No, it's terrible. With promises that there's actually streets paved with gold, and actually naively that streets are paved with gold, just this sort of oral history of really bad information, they're not paved with gold, coming into a community because of the color of their skin being dark brown or black in a community which was white and African-American already at war with one another. So I learned the stories of when we lived in an African-American community of the anger of African-Americans, furious that resources were being dedicated to the community that was the Cuban community at the time, because Jimmy Carter, the president, was worried about the votes of the Cuban community, and he needed, you have to win Florida to be president of the United States, Florida and Ohio. The rest almost don't matter. The last election almost showed it. So all this politics you're seeing, and then there's people on the ground living in terrible situations. No one's helping them with that. So Florida with Haitian refugees, Cuban refugees, African-Americans being disenfranchised, and a fairly wealthy white population that loves the weather and the beaches and the boating opportunities. But if you take a child to the immigration office to file the immigration papers, there's a form called the I-94. And at the time, you had to fill it out. And they didn't know how to read or write. And they're there by themselves. So you're helping them fill out the paperwork. And you have to have a reason why you're here. And here being the U.S. in 1980. And if it's a political reason, you get to stay. If it's an economic reason, we're sending you back. Because in the politics is economic refugees are our friends. And political refugees are our enemies. And in the island of Espanol, which is, you, you may be aware um, in the Caribbean, has the Dominican Republic on one side, and on the other side, Haiti, one of the worst agricultural lands in the world, one of the poorest countries in all of the northern hemisphere, that the, the young people who were growing up in that situation actually had nothing they could claim was economic, but they were forced to be treated as economic refugees. They were being chased out by uh, something called the Tonton Makut, basically a Gestapo-like group that was run by baby Dr. Valier, who was the dictator at the time. And anybody that disagreed was kicked off the island. Or worse, you were eliminated from the planet. And so they had all these political reasons, but we were forced to document the economic refugees that I was poor uh, reasons. But I worked for this legal firm, which was a voluntary pro bono group of lawyers. So we were tutoring kids and then trying to document their cases so they could stay in the U.S. until... They had a deportation hearing. So just in three minutes, if I haven't confused you, I was taking all this stuff in as a naive, middle-class, white person about all the culture of the place, how it was all blowing up around us, how it was all about a presidential election, it was about hostages in Iran, and here's these kids, didn't know how to read and write. They're being placed in Miami schools that weren't ready for them. They were put in age-equivalent classrooms, even though they weren't up to the with kids who didn't match well. And saying, we've got to do something about this, because I, what I've realized is all these adults who are in charge have really made the problems worse, and these kids deserve better. So I was helping, in addition to the tutoring we were doing, teaching we were doing, helping document their cases to go into the courts to give Haitian refugees the right before they were sent back on crappy boats to give a chance to say that they were political refugees. And they actually won that case. The lawyers in charge with the documentation we helped provide one in the appeals court, it was in New Orleans that they ended up winning the case, which gave at least a three-month window for every one of the refugees to get a chance to make their case. 
Otherwise, they would just ship right back. And I felt if I was doing that, I was contributing to probably great pain and suffering on behalf of them and their families. So in that, you become a bit wiser. Your naivety goes away. The living conditions were reasonably horrible. The situation there was basically Liberty City is the community I lived in. The Miami Heat play basketball in their arena right on top of the suburb where I was living at the time because they demolished it soon after. Um, but it was a pretty ugly, dangerous situation. Yet people were just trying to survive. And I learned I needed to just figure out something to do about that. And if there's any way to help, I thought I needed to turn my career into that. That's a much longer answer. Than the <laughs> no, but that gives us some amazing mm. context because uh, in 1980, uh, I can't remember much about that. I was too young. But I think anybody in that situation would really have to grow really fast to be able to make sense of all that and then act on it. In your case, uh, do you think that that was a catalyst to become an educator and yeah. take you to where you are now? Yeah, and what's interesting, I'll skip through some other highlights just because it's not a biography or an autobiography we're doing, but just a couple years later when I was teaching and working toward a postgrad degree, I was running a tutoring program in Amherst, Massachusetts, which is in the northeast part of the U.S., a lovely spot. People may know Boston. It's about 90 miles maybe 120, 130K um, west of the city of Boston. And that time, Pol Pot was the ruler in Cambodia. And under Pol Pot's watch, one of the most horrible aspects of the 20th century, many people today aren't even studying. They may be studying Hitler and the Holocaust, which is abhorrent that it existed in our parents' and grandparents' lifetime, and many people still on the planet. But Pol Pot almost just after that, started to destroy people, all the educated in this country. I think four million people were butchered under his watch. And there were a bunch of kids left as orphans because if you were the pharmacist, if you were the doctor, if you were the teacher and you were going to object, you ended up being slaughtered. And you may have seen the killing fields, which mm -hmm. is, is worth watching if you really want um, to understand atrocity in the world. So I was running a tutoring program during my PhD program and while I was teaching in Massachusetts to help get the orphan kids from Cambodia, a lot of them were moved around the Western world as places to live that were safe havens just at the end of Pol Pot's regime and Catholic charities and other religious organizations were moving kids around. And we, in that area being fairly well-to-do, a bunch of children arrived. And when they arrived, they were sent to school very similarly in a school aid situation. I had some experience that I just was mentioning earlier so we started a program to help kids. They were doing fine in mass because mass is this universal language. In their writing, in their English, of course, it was new to them. They'd been in refugee camps for three or four years. Most had lost their families that had been adopted by American families through the charities that were sponsoring them. But we ran a tutoring program where undergraduate students at the university after school were coming and working with the kids to help them catch up. And it was a beautiful synergy of really making a difference for those kids who were now left uh, orphans, homeless, but in a new place where they could have a chance. So my teaching, formal teaching in proper teaching started in sort of two contexts that interestingly and just coincidentally are about the disenfranchised, the problems of politics in the world and about trying to create hope uh, out of what could be despair. And interestingly, my career shifted to a more normal teaching situation if there is one, but my mission is around this notion of equity which is we give every child what they need. And that's what's changed radically just in my time in teaching, where we used to give everybody the same lesson plan, the same way. You sit up, you ask questions, there'll be a test. 
on Friday, don't worry, right? And the examination is not rerouted. If Maybe we make the font a little bigger, but even then we didn't have the tools to do that. Most, if you didn't comply, you fail and you'll have a tough life, get over it. Now we've moved to the place, it's our job, and one of my mantras is every child deserves the education that's right for him or her. And our job is to 3D print that education for them. And we have the capability of doing that technically. We also have to have the political will that we need every child to find his or her potential, regardless of any disability they might have, regardless of any value that their family might bring, that we actually are all better off as a planet, every child empowered. And we actually know how to do it. And it costs more when we don't in the disenfranchisement of, and loss of human capacity, as well as the economic cost of putting them in jail or putting a guard in front of your house to protect you from the mob. Uh, those jobs are created when people don't have really good educations and they're seeking short-term solutions, which involve sort of negative things they decide to do. So I've got a two-parter for you now. How do you fix that technically? Or how do you do this technically? And then how do you do this politically? So the technical part is actually the part we know how to do. Every day that kids are in a place called school, that teacher has the power through her lesson that she's designed to encourage the cognitive capacity of her children to get excited. And what I mean is excited intellectually, stimulated to say, that's amazing, I wanna know more about that. So the power of the design of the curriculum of each teacher is to encourage every child to be engaged in so fantastic a way that they're eager to know more. Some people naturally that way, school gets in the way of it, and we spend most of schooling stealing that from kids. And they start out all very creative geniuses and we one by one pull that out of them and teach them how to be compliant, follow rules and don't ask questions, take good tests. And you know, if you fall off the assembly line, we'll throw you away. And we've thrown away about a third of our kids who just for whatever reason didn't comply. So the human cost of that is outrageous. The moral cost of that is not tolerable at this point since we know better. So actually it's through the power of teaching we now know it is the number one thing we can control. So it's actually curriculum design and engaging curriculum, which is part of what the theme of this episode is, is to be able to get kids inspired and really engaged. And now we have a lot from the learning sciences. We know what happens in the brain when we build that. It's, it's really academic hopefulness, a stimulus that many of us get when we might see the best theater in the world or maybe a sporting fan, the best sport in the world. If you're watching the World Cup and your team's in it and you're, oh my God, it's going to go into penalty kicks. People, What if that happened in chemistry? What if that happened in biology? What if that happened in history? That same feeling of engagement intellectually. And for many kids, it's there, but most everybody, even many of our top academic kids are actually generally bored with the current status of schools. So the first part is about the quality of teachers. And that's ground zero, I think. Um, the second part politically comes from if we do that right for a generation or so, we create open-minded, reasonable, thoughtful, caring people who want to have great uh, lives and who then can have families themselves who break the chain of any of the hatred or racism or bigotry that's maybe some legacies. So I think the political problem is fixed by a strong educational system. In the meantime, what I'm really worried about is there's an increasing gap between those who have opportunities in education and those that don't. It seems to be that some governments, including the Australian one now, are actually perpetuating policies that have failed in the, in the UK and the US that have increased the gaps between those that have and those that have not. So I think it's got to be by young people rising up in the academic way, intellectual way, by creating a society that's just and fair because that's what they've been brought up in in their education. 
Uh, and then by doing that, we don't, the political system will fix itself. We'll vote the others out, whoever they are. In fact, political parties in the US, the UK, and Australia right now are two sides of the same coin because they're really not that much different. They play like they are and they have media to make it look like they are, but they're really the same conversation. And they're mostly pleasing the very wealthy to stay in power. Because So in that sense, I think by creating open-mindedness and well-informed people, all of a sudden, different things happen. Uh, some things do take a long time and it is a multi-generational struggle, isn't it? It takes, takes a while to make to achieve change in things that have been the same pretty much for generations, maybe 100, 200 years. So would I be right to say that what you propose uh, in terms of education is that we need to go towards a personalized version of education, which you said by 3D type, 3D printing? Yeah, it's a really good way to say it. Let me just compare what it was like maybe when you were in school, maybe you went to a special place and you'll correct me. No, normal public school. <laughs> but for too, for too long, um, schools have been places young people go to watch their teachers work. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> sort of another way to think about what it was like. I call it sit and get, where you sat and got. I explained a little earlier that to teachers in front, you knew your role, you sat passively, you did your work or you didn't, and you were sorted. Um, there wasn't a lot of choice, wasn't a lot of variety. I use the notion of 3D printing to make one of the one of the things that's changed. Right now, all around the world, neuroscientists are able to 3D print uh, titanium or other material that actually can replace cancer that uh, ridden structures in the bone in the back of the neck and put people back together and they can have a great life. That wasn't even possible 20 years ago. They might have taken it off the shelf or fused or done some other surgical procedure to left people not able to do all the versatile things with the rest of their life. And we can 3D print what works for your skeletal system, not not mine. Um, We can have the Airbus 350 that's made um, one of the lightest planes. They 3D the parts for that plane at assembly. They don't ship them in. Uh, The other innovations that are happening with the human heart and the liver and things in the next few years where you'll be able to basically, if you need a heart transplant, grow your own heart. And that will actually be better than borrowing from somebody who's deceased because of all the misfit aspects of rejection and such. Sorry, we're talking about the mass customization of education. Mm-hmm. How does one yes. achieve that within the current system? So we can get education right for everybody. Simple things are for anybody with a disability and needs things moved around, we can move it out of the way. If, if I can't get through between you, we can move apart. If I need to make the font bigger or make it blue. But what does it look like if, if you need mass differently taught. So part of that's how teacher education has to change, that we're not just teaching people what I call the two by four method of teaching, the two covers of the textbook and the four walls of the room, which is a narrow, linear way to think about that. In fact, uh, we're each in our global headquarters now, that anybody in the world can be brought to our classrooms and be part of guest lectures, and we can be collaborating with anybody anywhere. It's a whole different notion of even what a classroom is. And what kids need is what works for them. There are some models and there are some things, whether it's it's uh, about the kind of learning you were speaking of, but where we can get in education the opportunity to start with where kids are passionate. What were each of your passions when you were younger? Did you like animals or did you like technology or did you like reading or what? You had to say one thing that you remember was drove you to be really excited. What would that be? Uh, Marcus? I go computers in space. Yes, me too. Me, me too. It was the challenge, yeah. uh, or then the challenge about the space shuttle program. I vividly remember the challenge, of course, but I knew it would go back. Uh, things like that. Uh, TV was big. Um, electronics uh, for me was what drove me. And uh, 
all the way to today. Actually, I never, I never lost that. Mm. So that electronics part you're doing with the earbud, you have the device in front of you, and any of the other stuff around, um, around you, where you hope to gain as you gain more resources to to do other other projects. And what's what's tricky is how many people had to give that passion up. Mm. Maybe I could not be the first man on the moon. I remember I used to get up at the times when the first lunar landings in the Apollo mission. I was probably 10 when the first landing of Neil Armstrong on the moon and the one step for mankind and all that. I was fascinated by it, but I probably was too tall to be an astronaut. I couldn't, because they usually are Air Force pilots and at a certain point you actually couldn't become that. So maybe there's choices made by restrictions, but probably I was never even asked what my passion was and I parked it. To be a compliance student, you really forget your passion. And so if we could drive the notion of passion, you may have come to what you're doing today just accidentally when you got back to it, once you got all that formal schooling out of the way. And my thinking is that at least 40 to 50 percent, and there was a Grattan report in Australia just earlier this year that said 40 percent of Australian students are disengaged. Disengaged meaning they may be doing it, but they're going through the motion. They may be even getting a high but they're others who are disengaged and just tuning out and leaving. And for many of those young people, they're doing better as a result of leaving school in the short run. I met a young man at a conference last year in Newcastle who has dropped out of high school. No one really liked the fact he did, but he's running his own business on the backside of the internet, helping large companies with a lot of their data movement. And he knows more about the internet and what's happening on the side of it that I don't really know anything about than I will ever. He has Made thirty million dollars last year. <laughs> I love dropouts, <laughs> but they're so rare, right? Like, uh, personally, as I said, I was always passionate about electronics, but uh, none of that existed in school. So that's something that I had to not do. It was just in the background. Then I went to university, even though I did engineering at university, still I wasn't able to engage with my hobby, which was electronics. I had to stay in the background where I could, I could concentrate on the lessons and the exams. Even in my professional life later, all that put me in a path of a professional life that had nothing to do with my passion. And it was only 15, 20 years down the track that I thought, this has gone far enough and I have to stop it and really do what I really love doing. So it, my passion was, as you said, uh, in the background for almost uh, 25 years. Mm. And I'm sure it happens to a lot of people. If you've been part of the big picture program, which is evolving as one of the options, I don't support any one model. And so, but, but what I love about big picture is it starts with students who are disengaged, not disadvantaged. And I think one of the things that gets mixed up is there are some students disadvantaged in other societies. They use different terminology, basically coming from a lot of need. They may be low socioeconomic. They may have some some issues that have come up. They've made choices about. That, that's a different topic. Disengaged means you're not motivated by the way in which schooling is running, and you're turned off. Some of those, as I mentioned, are our top students. So what Big Picture does is we would start. Let's say year nine, year ten. You're showing signs of just boredom. We would start with a project that takes that electronics interest. And you have to do an internship in the community, either with somebody who has a startup, uh, somebody who has an established company, or you and uh, mates who you're uh, like the Beatles started a band. You form a little company that's a little startup of your own, and you document that, do a research project around it. You would do a budget analysis and a business plan. You end up doing the marketing, and you, or if you're working for somebody, you end up doing whatever they ask you to do. 
With that, you come back to school. That's a couple of days of basically doing a work integrated learning experience. You come back, it's like a passion project. Now in that, maybe the math didn't reach the tick boxes in the curriculum at the next level. It might be more computational than abstract algebra. Or maybe you did do that, or you have seemed to have a lot of science, but maybe it's not uh, biological science about the human body, so you miss that. We take the curriculum and we flip it upside down. I'll call it the flip school. A lot of the conversation about the flip classroom, I don't actually recommend because it sounds like what we used to do, which is you're supposed to do your homework before class. But the flip school means we take the curriculum and we spin it into what works for you. So you're doing these things that are interesting, but you may not have had enough writing, you may not have had enough English, you may not have had enough history. So now when you're back in school, we've given you credit into the curriculum for the things you've done. And you imagine if someone's very interested in whales and whale watching and touring, that's very different than interested in electronics. So everybody in the class is doing something different for which they need their teachers to plug them back into the curriculum that they're not getting. And with online learning and collaborative faculty in our school, we might be able to deliver you extra math, me extra science, you extra writing at different times in different ways than the linear curriculum that marches you through what they tell you to take. So I think where we're going is an individualized, personalized journey through your own education. So I was going to um, to say that that sounds like 3D printing for education. Just print out exactly the part that you need. Exactly. That's on demand in real time what you need. And because partners with your classmates, you're learning what they're doing as well and respecting each other's passion. Why did you call it big picture? The big picture Australia and big picture US schools have evolved over the last 25 years as an alternative model to schooling. And what it does is it takes kids who are disengaged and runs it runs basically secondary school in an alternative format. And it was started by a man by the name of Elliot Washner about 25 years ago in the US. It's morphed to Australia where there's over 40 big picture schools or schools within a school. And it's one of many models that are out there that are trying to take the school as it's been designed and flip it upside down and sideways. I call it Kettywumpkis because it's all different (laughs) and to get kids excited. Now for the top one third who are already working well in the traditional schools, um, they may be fine. I would question that their competition they think is with the kids in the suburb next to them rather than kids in Mumbai, Shanghai, Boston, Seoul, and Rio who are all inventing and creating knowledge. They're at least playing games with one another online right now, right? The whole world is talking to one another with social media and gaming technologies, not even included in most of the curriculum, right? Imagine all the world partners that you may have through your networks that aren't part of education. You may not know anything about their handle on the game you play, but we have all that waiting to be brought into the school. Those are global networks to apply all these projects to as well. So big picture is one of the models that tries to get schooling right for the child rather than the child right for schooling. Hmm. That's a whole opposite approach to where I think we're heading. And some of the models you mentioned in the intro about project-based and problem-based learning and some of the inquiry-based approaches all fit alongside of a big picture approach. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, John, how would a child or a student become part of a, or a student of a big picture school? Uh, should a teacher perhaps approach them and say, you look bored, maybe you should try this, or would that be the parent's responsibility? And then practically, how would it work? Do they have to enroll in such a school? Yeah, so Big Picture is run a couple of different ways. One is as a separate standalone school model, and others as a school within a school model. 
So just in the Newcastle area, we have several different versions. At the Hunter Sports High, which is here in Newcastle, it's a school within a school model. Kids who either they or their parents feel that they're, they want to be in a regular proper school situation, but the, the curriculum as it's going isn't working for them. Um, these are high achieving kids, could get all the highest marks and all the tests, but they're actually way ahead of it. And there's multiple examples of real success. They, they do a big picture approach as opposed to the lockstep curriculum. Hmm. There's a school in Cooks Hill here in Newcastle, which is actually a standalone school with the government running it for kids, particularly kids who either are way beyond the current curriculum, actually bored by it, or who have had choices made for them or they've made where they might have been out of school a while. What if you miss a huge amount of year 10 for whatever reason? You almost can't get yourself back into a traditional school curriculum enough to tick all the boxes to get the final marks, final grades, final test in New South Wales, the HSC and ATAR that you really want to have. But what if through this idea you, you can reboot and jumpstart and catch back up really quickly? So there's sort of two types at least of disengage, those who are way beyond the school has been directed, and those, for whatever reason, who didn't follow the pattern because they got ill or made choices or sometimes family upheaval causes kids to miss a lot of school. That's an increasing group of kids in the world as well, as I mentioned, refugee children, student children from dysfunctional families, children who have been ill or children who have made choices that weren't productive and they get it back together. And yet their normal traditional school doesn't give them a chance to plug back in because they've missed stuff. Well, you know, in this world, you can catch back up with a podcast overnight. You don't really need it to wait till next semester when we offer that course at eight in the morning only for 20 other kids. So you can see the transformational model that that is. So there's over 40 of those around Australia. There's uh, dozens in the US. And the model is one example. You'll see in every country different examples. Those are almost pop-up startups on the side of the system which indicate that the system's broken, that the traditional lockstep assembly law school is actually obsolete. I, and I think we're holding on to the schools that we know and are familiar with rather than inventing the schools that we need. And that's a model like Big Picture is one example of inventing the schools we need, not the ones we are used to. Could you tell us a bit about the role of the teacher in a school like that? Yeah, great question. So we need a different kind of teacher for that different kind of school. Because yeah. in many ways, it expands the teacher from um, the sage on the stage or the expert to a facilitator, a coach, a guide, a counselor, and in that, a generalist. Because in some schools, the teachers each still teach the separate curriculum. It's just chunked differently. So I might have some kids at various stages, different days of the curriculum, rather than everybody's on the same lesson. In some other schools, they use online learning and then supplement that. So you're much more of a carer and a proctor for online schooling. There's pros and cons to that, as you probably know. The online provides availability. It's not as easy to make it as, as touchy-feely. However, we can provide things in differentiated chunks so much differently in a mastery learning concept. You can go through, you might go A, B, C, D. I might go B, D, because I didn't need A and C. And that can be delivered to you based on um, basically in, you know, the intelligence of the software to recognize that I don't need to waste your time on L, you can skip right to M. And right now you'd have to wait, wait while the rest of us go through L for another two weeks of this unit that's useless to you. So with a combination of online and live, that's a whole different role for a teacher. It, it really is a almost an orchestra leader with people all playing different tunes. It, it sounds a bit funky, but with your headphones on, nobody's hearing it. Right? So, okay. But it's a very different role. 
that's what makes teacher ed funny now because we're actually preparing our teachers to go into schools, which, but we need them to be preparing for schools as we're changing. And that's the challenge of teacher ed is it's, and, but I think it's old school plus new school. I'll say old school is pre-Google. You guys know Google was created 20 years ago in 1987. And if you think about how much of your life has been post-Google, we almost can't remember that there wasn't a time. I'll use Google as the representation of what really becomes a major impetus to change how we do business in the world, how we get information. It's the equivalent of Gutenberg and the printing press, where 350 years since the printing press, it took to get a billion books. In the 20 years since Google, we have a billion index <laughs> Google's been able to get. And so 350 years to get a billion books and 20 years to get, get, get a billion websites, some of those legal, so maybe it's two <laughs> websites that are legal, 998,000 that are, or a million that are illegal. But in the counting. <laughs> in the, you've been able to get uh, a massive change in society where information is at our fingertips. We have a universal library at our fingertips. We can translate things immediately. We can go do all of our banking and infrastructure. And if we want to watch a speech from that, we can bring it up right now. We don't have to wait get a reel to reel and hope it doesn't break along the way. So the notion of teaching and learning has changed in that 20 years to where what a school is, what a teacher is, and what our role are is very, is very different. It's also threatening to the status quo because we still need schools to be places that children go so their moms can go to work. And what do you do if it's all kind of chaos and differentiated and unique? Or what if the child doesn't need to be in school? They need to be out doing other things. So logistically, we have to reorient ourselves that schools aren't just a place to hold kids until they can grow up and earn their own proper living. That schools are actually dynamic learning environments and learning centers, not testing centers and not holding bins and not pseudo prisons, which for many young people today, they feel like they're doing their sentence in school. So they can get back to the time. Don't remind me. <laughs> so I think it's quite amazing because what a teacher used to be is not what the teacher needs to be, not just in the future, but even now. Like teachers have to start thinking about how they need to change right now. So you had a unique experience uh, going back to Miami 1980s and everything else that, that happened in your life and, until now. From that perspective of somebody who's lived as a teacher through a lot of uh, troublesome times, refugee kids and, and all that, what kind of advice would you give to uh, existing teachers and even teachers just uh, going through teacher education now to be better prepared for what's coming, uh, what's here even? There's a theory in education called transformational teaching. That's a funny term of transformation. And if you think about um, probably one of the most important transformations is the metamorphosis that a, butterf a butterfly goes through when there's still a caterpillar. Hmm. And if you think about what education's about, is you don't know how beautiful a butterfly you're going to be when you're a caterpillar because it's all a lot of legs and it's a little awkward. And being a kid is that way as well, and particularly in Western society where there's peer and a lot of other stuff that goes on. And I don't know if a lot of people want to go through the cocoon stage where it gets all sticky and you dark and you're in kind of this thing you don't know where you're going. But if we think about transformation as getting going, I use this example, and I have a little video, which we can't play on doing this thing, but this transformational change starts with what I we were talking about earlier, and that's the space program. I, the Saturn V rocket that propelled the Apollo missions toward the moon was actually a pretty clever old school technology approach. They had to burn this massive candle to get gravity 
pulling against gravity to get into orbit, as opposed to blast straight to the moon, which would have meant probably disaster. We didn't have the thrust probably, but if we missed, it would have all been a disaster, right? We'd get out of Earth orbit, then we'd blown so far past the moon, we can't turn around, we're all dead. So they realized is let's get into orbit, let's check everything out, then let's use a little bit of a retro to spin out of orbit, and we'll use centrifugal force of the Earth's gravity, and coming back, they use the centrifugal force of the moon's gravity to pull away. But in doing so, we got launched. We figured it out, how we're going. Then we can make mid-course corrections on our way to the moon. Little retro rockets adjust, because it takes three days to get to the moon under our current technology. So let's say we are aiming and we got to go a little bit west, east, north, south, or whatever the spatial dimensions of that in, in space-time continuum go over there instead of over there. And in, in doing that, my recommendation is we got to get started. The hardest part of your question is actually get. So teachers are involving thinking of their curriculum differently, building in a project, building in an inquiry approach, building in students' passion, lots more choice. If we want them reading, it really doesn't matter what they're reading. We need them to read. We think we should read this book and write a summary of that. Well, there's a lot of books. Could I read that one? No, that's not on the list. Prescribed. <laughs> And if it needs to be from a certain culture, there's a lot of those as well. So by giving you choice, you might be able to stick to your passion and read more about electronics or more about the space program. We gotta get going. Once teachers get going and start to do a little bit differently, have different kinds of assessment that are more performance oriented, project-based, makerspace-based, um, then all of a sudden, they're more willing to think differently. So if we hold on tight, gravity's hard to bust through. If we get into orbit and we just start out, we can make adjustments along the way. The other thing is, is we don't know what our virtue, our example is of the moon. We don't know what that means, nirvana or something. Uh, but it means educa great education for everybody. But along the way, that's going to change because kids' hopes and desires will change. The world will change. There'll be new tools uh, available, new technologies. So if we get going, then the next generation of those things can help us make that decision. So I think for any teacher, current or new, it's about having what some of the theme of this episode they've been supposed to be about is that sort of STEM Mindset. Mindset, the, exactly. The mindset, even if it's not literally STEM or if you add the A for STEAM, and that creates a mindset of innovation, creativity, problem solving, open-mindedness, cultural awareness, ethics, which is one of the things missing from so many of what it appears to be training of everybody in leadership because they end up sinking themselves by being really bad decision makers and corrupt. Um, we create this mindset in what amounts to really science and technology and engineering and, math and the arts that gives you that will to, to be an inventor and a problem solver and a creator of knowledge. And you can do that in many ways. You can also do that in old school ways. So my representation is we still have to be very strong in literacy and numeracy, fine, that's the old school, but it's plus those new schools. Old school plus new school equals future school. So I've got, I've got a question that is troubling me. I was talking about this with Marcus earlier. What is it more important for both a teacher and a student to be really, really good, say, in mathematics or to be innovative mm -hmm. or both? So, yeah, I don't think I'm not a big either or fan. Um, I think in order not to be snookered today, I got emails this morning that I know were hijacking emails. They were going to try to hijack my computer. Dear sir, if you click here, we have a great deal for you <laughs> on something and the English isn't even. I know. Don't click on that. So I need that ability to read that email, not just click because there's an attachment there, right? So I need strong literacy skills, but I also need critical thinking and problem solving because what if that actually was one of my students and I didn't understand it was? Or what if 
Um, and the next email requires that I have to actually take something and solve a problem or create something new. Mm. So I think strong literacy and numeracy doesn't get replaced. It gets added. It makes the burden of a teacher very different because assessing critical thinking, problem solving, inquiry approaches isn't a paper and pencil test. It's actually real life stuff you got to do and I got to observe you. So I think a lot of the worries are how do we market? How do we standardize it? How do we compare? And the Western world, particularly Australia, the UK and the US, have bought into a massification of the education system, almost running schools like McDonald's, where we have to continue to add more salt to the fries so that people come back and buy more of it when none of it's good for us anyway. When interestingly, other countries in the world have gotten it better. In Finland, they don't have the national test. In Canada, they invest in teachers, not inspecting them. Um, there's models where you could say, huh, that's interesting. Why did they take those resources instead of putting on a new test? They put it in investing into teacher professional learning. So one of the things we have to do in countries that are overburdened with tests that get us information that kids that aren't doing well on tests uh, are primarily from lower socioeconomic background and have special needs. And we could put a new test on top of that and find out that again. Um, and those tests we don't really like anyway. Why aren't we investing in regimes of, the, of building teacher quality? But some of that's in the content that they feel confident that they understand the STEM areas as well. In order to teach science, you gotta know some of it. In order to know the technologies, you have to know the technologies to teach it. And so what we have to do is invest in our teachers rather than inspect them, put more tests on top of their students, and end up finding out what we already know is that we're not meeting the demands of a very new society. Remember, some of this is rather selfish. 30 years ago in Australia, there was something to do if you dropped out or were crappy at school. Something you could get a job in the mill or the mine or the industry. You could get have a super and a holiday and own a car. In Sydney, buying a house is hard for anybody right now, I think. You could have a good life if, if middle-class life is anything value, but you would be able to take care of your family in the way in which you hope to. Um, most of those jobs are gone or they're going to be, and anything can be automated will be. So in some ways, the selfishness to protect the lifestyle future, which gives people opportunity, is to give them the versatility to whatever comes up. You can flex with that system, and that system may mean your job is theoretically eliminated here, but your skill sets as a very keen thinker in creativity and problem solver and a technology expert means you can shift over here. So we need to give people versatile skills that protect them and the future-proof is a cliche at this point, but future-proof them. If you're just really good at taking tests, those tests are filling in bubble sheets or guessing right answers and always say C if you get. Those don't prepare you for the world of the flexibility we need. And it doesn't give you the open-mindedness you need to actually be tolerated in anything you do. We're shifting gears multiple times in our career because we get bored a lot. We're hoping to live long. But also, the skill sets needed seem to be adjusting. So you better be with it. But it also starts by being a good reader and writer. Um, and so we can't lose those things. It's just that alone is not going to prepare people for the future. So that's the selfish part. So you, you mentioned being a good reader and writer. Does programming and coding have anything, any importance these days? or? <laughs> So, yeah, it's actually become some of the new literacies. Yep. It's not literacy, it's literacies. And part of the, the amazing aspect of coding, as you're aware, is the kind of thinking you do is problem solving. I took one of the first basic courses back at the University of Virginia in 1976. The computer was about the size of my office, and we all dialed in through modems, and we had to program, and they printed it out overnight. And the best part of basic, which was an original programming language that was pretty crude at the time, but it actually forced you to think through solving problems and why things didn't work and coming back and trying again. And 
sometimes collaborating to help figure things out. So coding in more sophisticated language of today, or even in HTML, uh, allows you to really be a good critical thinker, as well as to design stuff that works or not. Just telling a robot to go pick up your coffee cup is coding, but that's much more of a skill than the actual getting that could have gotten that cup yourself. But that mindset you get is what I was speaking of with a STEM mindset. But you also may have to read about it as well in order to do it. You may have to understand, or you may have to put an instruction manual together for that robot for the next person. So we don't want to give away the traditional literacies. If nothing else, you need to read it vote. And a lot of societies have taken the voting rights away by having a literacy, so people don't even know who they're voting for. So even if you just need that literacy for voting, I, I encourage people to be readers of who's on the ballot. I was, uh, it's quite interesting, as, you, as, you, as I was thinking about what you were saying, I, I was reading an article on The New Scientist uh, today, and there was an article uh, about how Google is starting to develop general artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So artificial intelligence that is not just specific, specifically good at one thing, like recognizing a human face, but a couple of things, at least three things, which is what humans are really good at. And as you were talking about programming, it, it dawned to me that as teachers, we want to get students to think more like a computer by being programmers and using the, the programming way of thinking, computational thinking. But at the same time, we're trying to get computers to start thinking more like humans. <laughs> I don't know what to make out of that, but it's interesting. We're trying to get computers to be more like humans and then humans to be more like computers. Yeah, that's, yeah, I don't mind that. I haven't thought it through well enough to disagree. I think what we want is in the purpose in education is that we use information to make good decisions. A lot of times we make decisions without information. And right now what makes a driverless car not quite yet is it doesn't know how to make two bad choices. Mm -hmm. A lot of times in life, uh, the choices that we make are from just not all perfect uh, things that take place because life has its ups and downs, different situations with health or with accidents or with squabbles. Uh, so I think what we really want to do is to make good decisions and computers help us do that because we can get information so quickly we have to trust the source and that it's done properly or hasn't been hacked but i think the computers are partners in helping to make decisions i don't think we're trying to be like them i think we're trying to use information we can create to help make that happen volvo just announced this week they're having trouble in australia with the driverless car doesn't recognize kangaroos <laughs> because they haven't really figured out how to manage hopping yes Linear movement is fine. So if nothing else, we're protected for a while that you can still be the drive. <laughs> True. It's the drop bears I'm really worried about. <laughs> Those are killer, killer drop bears, mm. yeah. Mm. <laughs> there could be one with you now. You don't know. <laughs> we're saving you. <laughs> I wonder, um, we're about to wrap it up, but I wonder, just to go back to big, the big picture schools. Uh, so they are heavily into project-based learning, the way I understand it. What happens to students of big picture schools when they decide to go into university? Do they still need to go through an examination system or is there some other way of gaining entry? So there's a variety of, of ways. One is to do whichever country it happens to be in the proper admissions criteria and to take proper tests during school and just come in through the normal pathways, whatever normal means in the world we're in, but the traditional ones. There's other moves to do uh, new pathways. And one of them we're part of with Big Picture Australia and, and 10 universities in total are now part of this pilot is to say, let's, let's say, for example, you had done a project which allowed you to do some things around your interest in space 
and the uh, connections of wherever that took you. You were working with a professor of aerospace engineering at a university and in some lab, which was one of the things that some students here are doing in engineering is satellites now are getting much smaller. They're like a loaf of bread and we can launch them much easier and they can go off the cameras that are more versatile than the big ones used to be and propulsion systems, which don't need as much thrust to get them out. So we have kids designing and coding and building those for different purposes to go all around the, I guess the galaxy. I'm not sure we can say the universe at this point, but if <laughs> to go someplace, they may go there in our lifetime. Um, you might've worked on a project with that. You put together a portfolio that includes a research paper, your presentation, any of the other analysis you've done. So there's writing, there's research, there's science in that. Meanwhile, you put a portfolio, other entries around how you've made the curriculum relevant for you in the other disciplines that weren't part of that project. And you come before a panel at the university to the faculty you wanna to go to. Let's say it's a degree in aerospace engineering. Um, and you present to that faculty that portfolio. You don't have the other testing requirements. As an alternative, other pathway, not because you're less qualified, you actually could be more qualified. You didn't want to stop and do these other things because you were helping build a mini Mars rover that fits inside of a rocket that's the size of a loaf of bread that's going to bring us better information about Mars than the big ones sending that take a lot of money and a lot of time. So faculty can recommend that you're included or not into their pool. So what we're building is an additional pathway for graduates of big picture to present their case that they're equally capable of doing the work of a first year student. Interesting, by doing that, we know more about you than we do the thousands of students we have a test score and make a determination and try to support you. So we're in a pilot which is making that happen for students around the country in a small way. We're hoping that that might open the door for that to be a permanent pathway called portfolio entry to university. It's not a new concept the arts have done it forever. If you're an artist, you bring your portfolio of your work and you basically showcase it to a panel that judges whether it appears you have the skill set. If you're a pianist, you come and play for an admissions committee to get into the con. Uh, so if you take that, it's not a new example. It's actually taking that example and putting it into the other disciplines. Expanding. So looking, uh, say, 10 years from now, do you think that will be a lot more common, a, a more common way to get into a university program? It, it actually already is. There's a number of universities in the world that have already gone that direction. Um, and also the university itself will have to change just as we were talking about K-12 schools. The first year at university in most places is another compliance assembly line of places, large lecture classes and tests that aren't really valid. Um, so what Tausta has to happen is for a different time, we can talk about how university education has to change to be a very much more project-oriented, engaged process. It is in the latter part of programs, once you get to your major and you get to what's interesting, but in the first couple of years, it's almost a sorting system the way I describe schools to be. So yes is your answer straightforwardly, and also the I think those students and their younger siblings or their children will demand a different kind of university because that kind of book learning that we need can be done and delivered online and make traditional brick and mortar uh, university obsolete if we deliver it quickly as you sit in a large lecture theater and listen to me talk. Yeah, uh, You can roll the tape of this thing and you've just heard my lecture. So we don't really need all of that infrastructure. What we need is universities and places that people come to work together to solve problems and create knowledge that helps improve stuff. And that's a different kind of university that we need to build. Some of the small places in the world already do that. The big places just mass produce uh, learning and it may not be the kind of learning that we need. Yeah. Um we, both me and Marcus have got young kids, and uh, mm -hmm. 
I don't think that the university that my kids uh, will consider attending in uh, 15, 20 years from now will be what I did, what I attended. Even even school is changing, but university for sure. And I'm just even further thinking, um, they might not even go to university because they might just invent their own kind of university <laughs> and attend that instead. No, it's a built their own degree, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Or they'll want a chunk of it. You may only need, like the young man I talked about earlier that dropped out that I met last year, he now realized he has his own friends that he's been supervising. And he has to fire some of them. He wants to take a business course in how do you manage personnel. And he realizes he needs some budget management because he's he's been running all of this himself with a little Excel spreadsheet. So if you think about it, he may not want an MBA. He needs personnel management and finance um, or accounting. So um, if you think about it, want a chunk of this and a chunk of that, not the whole three or four years of it all. So all of that's got to change along with it. So we're not talking. We're not talking just about uh, schools changing, but the whole education system from top to bottom, bottom has to change. Yeah, and, and the, that's a real exciting transformational time we're in. The good news is we already know how to do it. We don't need the app for that. It's really <laughs> whether we have the will to get out in front of it or let it come dragging, or we're going to get places like Amazon that run it because Amazon's ready to launch their university, which will sell the textbook on the same website you can log into Accounting 101, uh, and it's best features in the world because it'll all look good. The quality may or may not be relevant, but it'll be faster, cheaper, easier. And a lot of what we've learned about our societies, we like it faster, cheaper, easier, whether it's better or not, the market will decide. But traditional universities are going to have to come along for the ride um, or they'll be obsolete. I can, I can think of, uh, I can think of in a few years from now, Google comes up with an artificial intelligence teacher that will learn about your usage by looking at your Google searches and your Facebook posts, and will put together a curriculum for you, and that's going to be your university education. Already in play, and there's some good good possibilities with that and some scary ones. So we better change, or we'll be just like the toll taker on the Harbor Bridge. <laughs> yeah. The there is right now. There's a machine that takes your picture. I appreciate the chance to be with you guys today. I hope it was somewhat helpful to the it listeners. Was take a a 362 we're back to nothing i hope it was very helpful oh thank you john i really uh, enjoyed the conversation um can i ask you if people want to get in touch with you what is the best way for them to do so yeah probably um, just email me if they want to google me find my name they'll be able to find the web just go right there and happy to receive an email and get back in touch great we'll we'll keep it in our show notes as well and make it easy for Snapchat, people we tweet we can text but let's start with email <laughs> Great. Thank you very much, John. Yeah, thanks very much. Great to meet you guys. That's all for this episode. If you have any questions or suggestions, please send them to our email address, questions at stemiverse.com, and we'd be happy to answer them. Do you want us to interview someone in particular? Let us know. Visit us at stemiverse.com to get the show notes of every episode. And subscribe on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, STEMiverse. That is S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.